So this is going to be a somewhat magical episode. Magical? It is not just live to tape. Not just live to tape. It is 5.25 p.m. Okay. Eastern Standard Time. Alohomora. On uh, that's a... Sunday, January... What, what is today, Joe? Is the 21st, 20th? I, can't I just remember the spell from Harry Potter, dude, and you talked right over it. I don't, I don't do you Harry Potter. You said it was a magical do episode. <laughs> yeah. That's Lord of the Rings. Yeah. You know, there are so few... You know, Lord of the Rings is, is, uh, is characterized among fantasy genres at, for having so few spellcasters. Hmm. Right? Like, magic is super rare. In, in that's true middle earth and one of my favorite uh one of my favorite moments of magic casting if you will in the uh uh lord of the rings trilogy yes is actually a moment that leads to a net reduction in the future use of magic because it is when gandalf having returned mm-hmm. uh says to Saruman, your staff is broken. Right, right. And in the saying of it makes it the case. Uh, it breaks his staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's uh, magic in the pursuit of less magic, which is interesting. And certainly my favorite, one of my favorite moments actually in in all three films. Now we know that the, the amount of magic can, I don't know, it can be increased in a way. I mean, you can imbue items with magical properties in Lord of the Rings world. I don't know that you, I don't we, I don't know that we ever knew. See, people who read the Silmarillion and all these other things will know, and they'll probably write in. They're probably writing already, like yeah, they're writing right seriously. now. Seriously, <laughs> yeah. Like whether you can create new magic users, like you can't. It right. seems like you can't do that. When you do write in, please do not write it in Elvish because <laughs> I don't have the translator module for that. <laughs> I would totally love that. I I could not read it, but it would be great, especially if you write it in such a way that like we have to take it outside. In front of the full moon, and then oh, we can read it. But then that we, would be great. Right. Or if when you read it, it makes the room go dark. <laughs> that means it's probably saying something very critical. <laughs> well, I can't believe how stupidly this whole thing started. But <laughs> <laughs> you oh, said it was boy. a magical episode. Uh, yeah, it is. Well, only because, like, as soon as we finish this, okay, like no editing, right. no nothing. It's going to go out. Publish, right? Live right. to tape. <laughs> which I guess means like in terms of sound and everything, it's the worst. Yeah. But, but it's magical in the sense that like, this is an instant, this is an insta episode. Do it live. An insta stowed. We're going to do it in- live. In- insta stowed. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. Yeah, that, doesn't that sounds like something me. that's caught in your throat. Exactly. The consonants are not in the right place for okay. that. The, now for that one, we need the Elvish word because it'll be prettier. Uh, <laughs> you, you got a beverage there, Joe. I do. And I have, unfortunately, this elbow is so sore I have to drink with the other arm. <laughs> you got, I, I cannot believe it. I cannot believe that you've already made reference to the medical corner. <laughs> no, I'm not going to say another word okay, about okay, it. Okay. All right. We're not, I was going to ask you about it and then it occurred to me that that would be bad. So we're going to – you know, we don't have a guest today, obviously. That's true. Uh, well, uh, you, you are my guest and I am your guest. Mm. And in that sense, we always have guests. Good point. What should we talk about today? Well, we have an amazing letter. We certainly want to talk about the email that we got. That would be a good thing. I got um, a couple other things too, but you want to start with that? From listener Avram. Uh, we don't have to start with it. If no, you please have other do. Things. No, no, no. Start with that. I thought it was really awesome. Let's, let's start by clearing so out sure the mailbag. Let's start with this. You don't yeah. have other things you want to do that are that – because are, this – we could talk about this for like three hours. Really? Maybe not, but maybe. Depends. Depends on what your views are and – what my views are. 
Okay, let me just let me so let me just hit you up front with the kinds of things I wanted to talk about. Okay, cool. And then you can and then we can decide. Yeah, and the listeners will know what we're gonna just yeah, leave out. Exactly. So one thing that just came in like hot off the presses on, on the Twitters okay. that I saw tweet, and then it was an article from back in December that um, that was published by uh, it looks like Ruth Kolker from Ohio State mm. about laptop bans and questioning. Like, suggest there's a small empirical study showing that actually people who use laptops do as well as people who don't. We've talked about this a little bit before in the show. It's we have. A, my recollection is that she's also someone who who has uh, made some points about you know um, uh, ADA issues and other like th- there are a lot of issues that go into preventing people from using laptops. It's not as it's not as straightforward as it might seem. From, right from some of the pieces that say, "Oh my gosh, students who use laptops do much worse." Right. And and her conclusion is so long as they're not using the internet, it seems like like so long as you, and and maybe a lot of people think well that's the whole point right of a laptop ban is keep them off the internet but actually some of those earlier studies had had evaluated whether taking a transcript like students tendency just right. to liter to to just transcribe literally what the professor is saying is a right so, and, and that even if you tell people don't do that they end up doing it and so they end up doing worse and the studies were a little bit stylized so it's hard to know so I think the whole area is very interesting and uncertain. Um, that's one way to care. Another way to characterize it is, oh my gosh, here's another kind of conflicting study and we're going to treat it like health advice from the New York times where there's always a new study and it's always the opposite of what it was the week before. Right. I mean, the, the, the best thing about it, of course, is that it allows you to indulge in the purest forms of motivated reasoning. So, (laughs) um, well, that's, yeah. I mean, that, that, that follows up on another thing I wanted to talk about and we can just lay this aside. Okay. It's more about this what should law professors do on Twitter mm. debate, right? And the Hessek piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, her piece is really interesting. At some point, we can talk more about that. Um, and one of the things that I think we discussed last time that, that it occurred to me is that one of the problems with law prof tweeting, right, is that people who want to make just a political, raw political point on Twitter will just grab these as a kind of authoritative talismans, right? Ooh, okay. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so that's a problem. But like, did I say this last night? You know, I've been on Twitter since 2007. Uh-huh. When I got on Twitter, I don't know that there were like, I'm sure there were some law profs on Twitter, but I don't remember who they were. It's not why I got on Twitter. Yeah. I didn't, I think I have law prof in my, you know, in my little bio, but like I didn't get on Twitter as a law prof. Right. Like, I don't always tweet about law. I rarely tweet about law um, for various reasons. Some of the reasons I don't are contained in some of these arguments. Sure. Um, but now it's like, should I be using Twitter? You know, it's like, I feel like people are telling me to use Twitter differently. Mm. Like, it's like, you know, I've been here for a while. I'm using it like I want to use it. You know what I mean, Joe? Are you hearing me? I, I am hearing you. I don't know that I know what you mean, but that's okay. Well, see, I'm trying to just cue up the topic without getting into it. Okay. I think I'm failing. Yeah, we'll I think I'm, I think I'm failing at that. But the upshot is that, I don't know. It, you know, it's like you're. It's like you. It's it's like you, you've been going to a cafe for a long time just because you love the coffee. Yeah. Forget the fact that that cafe closes and breaks your heart. <laughs> that's because that's a different Which issue. Is, yeah. But by the way, that is a, a consistent source of unhappiness for me these days. Mm. But um, but you go there just because you love the coffee and you love meeting a bunch of other people. But then a lot of people in your profession start to hang out there, and it becomes kind of a professional hangout. Mm. And and then people start to suggest that you should behave in a certain way when you're there. Yeah. But, like, 
I've been here for a while, and that's not why I originally showed up here. That's right. the flavor of what I want to get into. And I'm not going to. I'm not ready to make like a a serious in depth. So on argument the one hand, one might feel, gosh, um, I don't. I don't want to stay here anymore if it's become a thing that is that I wouldn't have come to if it were this way when I got here. Yeah. It, on the other hand, hey, like I've been here a while. I use it in a way that makes sense for me. I'm not going to let you ruin my good time. Um, and you know who made you the boss of me. Hmm. Uh, so I, I would – yeah, I, I could see having a sense of conflict. Not and- – not, not, Sort of super dramatic conflict, but it's a, sort of a low grade. Low grade, of that's it. Low grade tension, like. But it's that you know. I feel like academics. It's like our job to go after those those little low grade tensions. Mm. Nice. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and then there's a whole Trump exceptionalism problem. Like everything, every place where people talk about anything now, all the rules are a little bit in flux because what do we do about the whole Trump thing? Mm. So that's an issue too. Right. So that was one thing I thought we could talk about maybe we already have um feels like there was another one. Oh, yeah yeah so um you know my supreme court discussion group met again this week you know i do this group you've been yeah. you've attended before I have. um uh, not recently true not in a long time true wow um hmm have to get you back joe have to get you back sure uh anyway it's a group it's 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 not associated with the law school directly you know there's no credit for it or anything but but we uh students get together at my place, over dinner and drinks, every couple of weeks, and we talk about usually two Supreme Court cases, either yep. pending or recently decided. And it is terrifically fun. I've got this great group of alums. And, and you, know, the only, you know, the only bad thing about this group, there is one bad thing. And you're going to tell us. Yes. There are more people who want to do it than there are kind of places to sit in my living room. Mm. And, the, and the students, you know, it's their group, so they basically pick the people who are coming in okay. the next year. But, like – the people who apply and would be great, who don't kind of get in, and the people who do get in, like there's not a lot of like you, you know what I mean. There's not like a clear distinction. Okay, you know what I mean. Like you not can't really. Meaning, you have to make some pretty arbitrary decisions. Well, of course, yeah. And so you know, you hate. I mean, it's a space limited. It's thing, a space so. limited thing where you have to allocate, but like you, you know, you feel bad. At least I feel bad. Oh, well, sure. I always feel bad. Uh, so that's the only bad thing about the group. But otherwise, the, you know, there's so many great people who've been in the group over the years. Uh, and we talked about two cases this week, mm-hmm. which made me think, I don't know, I, I, I kind of drew this, the Husted case, which is the Ohio voting uh, purge case. not Husted. It's Husted. called, no, I think it's pronounced Husted. It's Husted. He's the Ohio Secretary of State, and he I've, pronounces his I've, family name Husted. I've never met him. And Nor have I, I and I've I'm heard just, it. Uh, I, I, I feel it is authoritatively established. Right, that is he pronounces his family for name all. Uh, for you, all you can I know, pronounce it any way you like. Well, no, I mean I should pronounce it how he pronounces it. For okay. all I know, it's Husted. I, I don't know. I, I don't know, Joe. I'm just saying I've never met him. I don't know. So what you're asserting is that the only way to know is to have met him. <laughs> In person. Well, and I think that is a standard that you don't typically apply. <laughs> My guess is you're willing to accept family name pronunciations uh, that, that you're informed about by persons other than the persons in uh, possessing that family name. Well, I'm certainly not going to. So what you, also, what you yeah. also are doing implicitly is slagging on my ability to reasonably inform you and, and reliably inform you of someone's family name. Now, well, now that, now that is true. 
and there is and there is as a matter of historical record established on this very program right. there is some basis for that I there is say, a non-zero basis for thinking pretty much the last person you should rely here's on where we could say ample me. basis we could say ample basis i think in this yeah. case um but so, i'm just telling you I, it's okay. pronounced houston I've, I've, I've actually not heard it pronounced um yes actually, you have by me just now Actually, so you can <laughs> continue to insist on ignorance, lack of information. I haven't heard. Oh I haven't met him. Joe, uh, I said there would be no editing, and the show has gone totally off the rails. Any other time, I feel like this is so on the rails. <laughs> this is so. This is so right on our rails. So I actually have heard it pronounced in two other places. Mm. One is on First Mondays. Boy, what a show. Am I right? So good. Um, and the other is on Dahlia's show, Amicus. Mm-hmm. Also, what a show. Am I right? Fantastic. Like, maybe this expl- – I don't know. Are you surprised that anybody listens to the show with Very. these two other – We have to have aspirations. <laughs> this is what I think. Um, but, you know, I listen to both those at quite an enhanced speed. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe in the back of my mind I'm thinking it's pronounced Houston. Let's do this. It's pronounced Houston. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. Why don't you talk about your group this past Thursday? Because this was one of the cases that you all talked about. The other is the Ohio voting purge, uh, vo- voter purge case. The other is the masterpiece um, cake shop mm-hmm. case. Okay. And so, so I, I don't know if we want to talk about these at greater length. I would kind of like to because I was. Hmm, uh, we, what occurs to me in, in, in reading these briefs and, and, and listening to the arguments? I would love to talk about the cases once they're decided. I think that could be really yeah. fun. So, so the, here's the thing, though. The arguments in the case so, – so in Masterpiece Cake, this is the one about the, the, um, the baker in Colorado who refused to bake a cake mm-hmm. for a gay wedding. Right. Um, custom cake, although the facts are weird and, uh, and then an action is brought by uh, Colorado against this baker and right. now Colorado, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is being sued uh, by the baker to say, you're not the boss of me. Like First Amendment right, mm-hmm. religious right, rights, 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 rights to you know, decide what I want to do. Right. And, um, and so the case is all, like, is all about, like, is this speech? Is this guy an artist? Or as Breyer pushes, is he an artisan? Is there an artist-artisan distinction that we're going to make in the law? Is there a speech-non-speech distinction we're going to make in the law? Is this a matter of kind of religious right? And how far does that go? Um, I kind of preferred, if we're going to go on traditional legal grounds, to think of, of the key distinction as that between agency and non-agency. But we can talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Um, and and so there are all these like legal dis- – and you can think of like examples for each one, like hairstylist. Is that an artist? Is that not an artist? Is it speech? Is it not speech? Right. So you can think you – know, there, there are binary terms which seem to sort the legal doctrine in each of these cases. So if it's speech, then uh, uh, then this is a form of compelled speech. And that's you know problematic. Usually the government saying you must say this thing that you don't agree with is problematic. Um, so – I was kind of frustrated with all this in a way. And so too in the – how do you say it? Husted case. So this in this case, um, Col- uh, um, Ohio, Ohio has adopted a rule in order to um, – well, there are two federal statutes which were passed. There's the uh, mo- so-called motor voter, motor voter law which passed in the early days I think of the Clinton administration. And then there's the Help America Vote Act which happened – after the uh, Bush versus Gore debacle. Mm-hmm. And the combination of these creates kind of an obligation for states to kind of keep their voter rolls up to date. Um, and it does a couple other things. But one of them is to forbid states from purging people from the rolls 
for reason of not having voted. I, I don't have the language right in front of me. And the language turns out to be important because this is a statutory interpretation case. Yes, entirely, really. Yeah. Well, o- yeah. Although the way you interpret these statutes, of course, because the statutes about people voting, undoubtedly your your sort of your constitutional priors about the importance of voting and how expansively it should be available and all that stuff, uh, it would inform how you would read the statute because it would inform how you would think Congress would have tried to write the statute. Right. And in, in and what Ohio did was to come up with a procedure uh, by which they would observe whether people failed to vote in, in an election in the last two years. If they did, they would send them a card, which was forwardable. So if if you know it would follow you where you went and would not and would not be returned to sender um, if it was undeliverable, I guess. And if and that that card informed you that hey, you know, you haven't voted. We're thinking maybe you've moved if you haven't send this back right. and, uh, and and otherwise we may take you off of the rolls if you don't vote within the next four years right and so yeah it sounds like ohio is not making the failure to vote the sole cause of why you are removed although it is the beginning and the end of the chain of events the, the intervening event is your failure to return a card now right if uh if there is a complete correspondence between being present in that address and faithfully returning the card and not being present there and not returning the card. It sounds like they're making some reasonable inferences based on what they're observing and people's behavior. But, but actually, we know just the reverse is the case, that there are many, 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 many people who receive the card at the address to where it, it is sent. And, and, um, and of course, you know, they just throw it away which is right. how most people would respond to this card. So if if you get the card and it says you haven't voted, hey, you need to send this back, well, if you're not really processing it and you decide to throw it away, well, had you moved? No. You just decided not to vote. So one of the things the case implicates, I think, is how we should think about um, do people have uh, an interest in refusing to vote if they so choose and not be having that used as a basis for striking them for, from the voter roll. Well, you can go further because the statute makes it clear that you can only be taken off – you can only be purged – an eligible voter can only be purged from the rolls for specific reasons like death, moving right. out of the jurisdiction, right. that sort of and, thing. And so failure to, to return a card is not – failure to vote and failure to re- return a card are not among them. Are not among those reasons. And further, the statute goes out of its way to say that you can't be purged for, you know, for reason – a failure to vote and suggesting Congress had conceptualized not voting as a sort of a chosen behavior in that people ought to be able to choose without negative consequences. But the statute has this complicating has, has this complicating yeah, it depends on which part problem. Of it, this is why well, no, but the, the complicating Court, right because it, right. They, you've got you've got multiple statutes doing multiple things and that creates the complications and unfortunately. Uh, those who who are committed to making it harder for people to vote for whatever reason uh, uh, can use those ambiguities, those vagaries, those complicated interrelationships, statute or revisions to say, yeah, sure, this makes – we can do this. this well, well, I mean, it, yeah, but there is a complicating statutory interpretation problem here because another part of the statute contains a so-called confirmation procedure by which you can purge someone from the rolls if – Right. If to confirm that they are in one of those categories, right? If you send them a a forwardable notice and inform them that they will be removed from the rolls if they don't vote, I think it's in the next four years. 
Again, I don't have the statutory text in front of me. So the very thing that seems to be at issue here is specifically authorized by statute in another part of the statute. But that's a confirmation procedure. If you had other reason to believe if you that had any other, of those things were well, true, and, and not voting is not, by the statute itself, not a reason to believe those things. Well, it's sort so of put that's, kind of what, that's kind of what it is. Like, it actually, me. not voting may be a reason to say, hey, maybe the person moved, and then you confirm it through this procedure that Congress has laid out in the statute. But that's Ohio's argument, right? That right. like non-voting, it, we're not removing them because of that. But it raises maybe an inference that maybe, maybe. they've moved, and now we're going to confirm whether they have moved using the con- using the congressionally authorized procedure. Because it's about the um, – for me, because it's about uh, the right to vote and, and what seems like a congressional uh, uh, interest in protecting a right not to vote, the way I look at that sort of panoply of provisions is to say, it seems to me the one thing that's pretty clear is that it's put out of bounds – the idea that failing to vote is a valid reason to start these these this machine whirring into action mm-hmm. um, that you'd need some other reason to believe. Yes, yeah, so this is the theory that that the person had died this is the or theory, moved. Or, right. This is the theory that that the statute by saying that you can't remove them for reason of failure to vote basically prohibits using it as a trigger. To engage in further procedures, and it's especially, but uh, I, it seems especially uh, important to recognize that it's not like there aren't lots of other ways for states to get information like that. Well, there, right, the, so there are yeah. they, they can check other sources of information. There's the postal service forms, and there's a certain like there's a there's kind of an astonishing lack of empirical evidence about who actually about what are good signifiers of people having moved. And how many people have been stricken from the rolls and, and which categories they fell in. And, and um, Well, many more people don't vote in a given year than who move in a given year. I mean, I think we know that. So you might say there's, there are, there's lack of information about empirical bases, but some of the empirical bases are just what well, we, what know we don't know is like what we don't know is like how many people don't vote in six years having received uh, a card about their being stricken from the rolls in year two yeah, at the end of year two. as is so often true, we're trying to figure out where the uncertainty lies, but like against whom it should there cut. Was a, and it seems to me the statute yeah. is saying you do, it does not cut against the voter. The advocate for the voter in this case, I thought was exceptional. That just did a fantastic job. And um, and, and, and and basically argued that the... It was, it was Paul Smith, right? I'm I'm forgetting now. I mean, I'm, you know, I just listened to it. was Paul it. Smith, the guy who argued Lawrence against Texas. Uh, he's a Jenner and Block in Washington D.C. I think it's I think it was Paul Smith who argued this case on behalf of yeah. the Ohio voters. Well, we'll correct it pro- next time or confirm it next time. Um, I, I I don't have it in front of me, and and you know this is a this is a late evening Sounded edition like of oral argument. This is just kind of a rollicking kind of let's just Woo-hoo! let's just talk. We got a couple of adult beverages, <clears throat> right? And we're going to so get to this email. We're going to get to the email. So, uh, um, but the, but the argument, of course, is that it hinges on the idea that the failure to return a card basically tells you nothing. Right, that there are ways to to use a card which might tell you something. Like if you send a card uh, which says "Do not forward," and it's returned, that tells you one thing. If it's not returned, that tells you another. I mean, again, you could send something that says "Do not forward." It could go to an apartment building. Some it could get kind of get put on the you know in the postal box of someone, and, and nothing could ever happen. Like it doesn't get returned. But ordinarily, if, if it says "Do not forward," 
and the person doesn't live at that address, it will be sent back, I guess. So, you know, again, empirical, like how often this happens relative right. to affordable mail, I don't know. So there, there are these other ways, but, but, but not, um, not getting a response from, from a voter, the argument from the advocate is that that basically tells you nothing. And so at the, at the end of the day, when they've purged these people from the rolls based on failure to vote plus non-returning of a card, if non-returning of a card tells you nothing, then the reason they've been removed from the polls is uh, from the rolls is is failure to vote. Especially when that is, as I, I said at the outset, sort of it's both the beginning and the end of the process, right? right. So you really it's it is it is a I didn't vote nothing sandwich there <laughs> because you want to make this very important inference based on having sent me a card that that you didn't get back. Right. That might have been like electrostatically bound to the junk mail that I put immediately into the recycling bin. Right. Or that might have been, you know, electrostatically bound to the magazine, which was, which was put in my apartment neighbor's slot or something like that. Right. I mean, there are all these things could happen. So, uh, what if it's, what if it's sent in English and I'm not a native speaker of English? So it's yeah. hard for me to parse the card, and I didn't have a chance to ask a friend, and then I forgot about it, and you know these are these you know human beings have human lives, or it was just delivered somewhere, and and I actually had not I actually reasons. actually had moved, but I'm within the jurisdiction. I had no or I'm homeless, and the person to whom it was delivered said, "Well, this isn't me," and they just threw it away or recycled it. Right. So, so there are all this anyway. There are lots of there are lots of uh, uh, good arguments about this. I'm not convinced about the right not to vote argument. Maybe that's something we can talk about later. Um, uh, meaning another date. I don't think today. Right. I'm not as convinced about the right not to so, vote. So why did you bring all this up? Well, with you, both you of these cases, like, and you as, about- as we were talking about this, I mean, first of all, the students are great. They have lots of good ideas and it was a fun discussion. And, it, and you know, it was the first, it was kind of my, the first day back after, uh, first of all, having had a stomach virus mm-hmm. early, earlier in the week mm-hmm. and all this weather stuff and really the semester had just gotten started and yep. it kind of reminded me like what's great about hanging mm. out with students and talking cool. about law. So. So shout out to my Supreme Court discussion group students. You guys make it great. But, um, but, but it occurs to me that like in both of these arguments, it's like not about what people are talking about. Like, it, like the, this, the outcome of this case is not going to turn on these fine distinctions. Like your understanding of the meaning of the statute and how it should apply to, the, to this voter who was basically disenfranchised for at least one election totally turns on your estimation of the um, of how the world works and what people's motivations are and um, and what Ohio was trying to do here right I mean the, the kind of things that you you were talking about at and, the very beginning yeah and how and, protective and that, of the right to vote we should be and, and that Justice Sotomayor brought up in an argument um, you know that this is like we know like we all know what's happening here yeah kind of thing right and um, which it goes back to this idea I had a long time ago, like that, that these partisan secretaries of state who run these elections, like, first of all, why do we, ha- why do we have these jokers running elections? Like, why do we have partisan people running? Like, it's like, anyway, that, that aside, like, forget about like districting and everything else where people have talked about these kind of nonpartisan commissions and the possibilities of that right. non-possibilities, like maybe having a commission of people who are responsible to each other, who have to argue with reasons among each other and publish things, you know, maybe having that group run elections, like even if no one is truly nonpartisan, like maybe we would vector towards something better. Yeah. Um, but letting these kind of partisan hacks, and I'm not saying this guy is, 
not saying this guy in Ohio. I, I, as has been established on this show, I do not know this guy. Mm. I can't even pronounce his last name. Uh, <clears throat> but there are partisan hacks around the country who are secretaries of state, right? Sure. And why? Why? And, and why don't we judge their, how they do their job by how they do their job? Like, how many people vote? Well, how many people are you getting we, voting? We've certainly had this conversation before, and because we've started it before and, and we've had it before, I'm going to say what I said before, which is that uh, people who are interested in this topic and want to learn some of the state-of-the-art techniques you can use if you thought of your job as taking a customer service-oriented approach to making sure people who are eligible to vote have an opportunity fully and fairly to do so, if that is their desire, look to the state of Oregon. Because yeah, Oregon has this, yeah. really amazing uh, use of automatic registration and mail-in ballot, and you can also drop off your ballot, and it's an extremely secure system. Uh, and there, the Secretary of State... Uh, statewide office in Oregon, it is it is an R or a D mm-hmm. um, who runs for it and gets the job. I suppose some, an independent could also run for it if they wanted to. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so you can have someone who is an elected official with a particular party affiliation a- and who is committed to the notion that my job here is to ensure that everyone who's eligible to vote is a full and fair opportunity to do so and that those who are not eligible to vote do not. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so I, uh, in a, in yeah, we have talked about this before, way but... to make sure it's just a very professional uh, uh, system that's reliable, secure. Everyone in the state has faith in it, and the participation rates there are through the roof. Can you give me an argument though for why the chief elections officer of a state should be a partisan position? Not, not particularly. I mean, can I give you an argument about why it should be? No. Um, but you've given me an argument or you've given me an example that maybe it can work, maybe sure. not as well as it would work if you had nonpartisan entirely possible boards. But so 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 there was that. But also in Masterpiece, the cake case, the Baker case, right um, there, too, like there are all of these arguments about how do you define speech and whether someone is an artist or not and whether that matters and how this works. But like we we all know that your your attitudes toward those words, like these words are, are, are meant to kind of mark out a, an acceptable doctrinal position that that creates a legal framework which matches our kind of political intuitions about things. Right. That this is this goes to. What we talked about, I think, a long time ago, um, I think when the when the gay marriage cases were first coming down, mm-hmm. right, that the meaning of equality, right, uh, just like the meaning of speech, um, is 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 kind of a container for politics. And if oh, wait, I'm not, I don't think I'm saying this as well as 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 it occurred to me uh, when we were talking about it the other night, but. But it, but it, but it seems to me that the um, that the question here, right? It, so in, you, you remember in um, uh, Obergefell, uh, Justice Kennedy leaves open the, or he doesn't leave open, but he, but he says like people of goodwill can disagree about this. Sure. Basically, like many fine people would disagree about whether this should be legal, and many fine people abhor homosexuality. That kind of language is in there, right? But that kind of thing. Um, and it was curious, and we talked about this, that kind of language was not in Loving. 
right? It wasn't like many fine people <laughs> could disagree with this, right? Right. Um, so it seems like the politics of it are such that, um, what, you know, what kinds of discriminations are okay? Private discriminations are okay. And it seems to be the kinds of discriminations that, like, you could agree to disagree about with, like, a buddy in a bar. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... Um, we can't imagine, like, because so, the whole question here is, like, how do you distinguish this from loving? Like, or how do you distinguish this from the cases about discrimination after loving, and private discrimination after loving? And, and, and it seems as though, um, uh, like, we can't imagine, like, if someone discriminated uh, against um, an African-American couple at a hotel or something like that, everyone would agree this is abhorrent, right? And illegal. Now, right, most people would say that, but that, yes. that's the way we're looking at. It. Like we're looking at that now. Like, whether, like you can't imagine anyone doing this, and if they did do it, they would there would be moral condemnation, right? Right. In other words, kind of dissenters from that view about inclusion would not be part of kind of the political consensus, right? But I think that at least there are some on the court who can, even if they themselves think that kind of discrimination, think themselves like, I would bake that cake, or you should bake that cake. Think to themselves, I know people, there are people in my family who would not bake that cake. And I don't see that as a disqualifying position. Like, I would not, like, break family ties over that. I would not stop meeting my buddy in the bar over that. That's the kind of thing we could agree to disagree about, and maybe not talk about because we feel strongly about it, but but we could... It's not so condemnable that it would create some sort of basic breach in the right. nature of our friendship or right. family relationship or right whereas if that person said you know i don't know you know people of different colors marrying i just can't deal with that and i just think it's wrong and and i think it's wrong because these other beliefs i have that might put some super serious strain now right on relationships now i do think it's interesting that uh, when loving was decided in 1967 I think I've got that right. Um, That issue probably was more like same-sex marriage might be today. I think you're right. There probably were plenty of people who had the view that I think it's important that people of different colors be treated alike. But I also have this view that there's some sort of basic social uh, togetherness and apartness standards that are okay and that people seem to want, and so people should be free to choose that, and it get it would get very muddled and weird, but there would be people who would say stuff like that. One of the reasons that I think I that I think that's the case is because my my vague recollection is there is a state, and I won't I won't say which one because it could be wrong, and we're not going to have time to check and edit things. But Rhode Island, yeah, um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, no. everyone knows Rhode Island is not a state; uh, it's a plantations. Isn't it Rhode Island plantations or something? Like what that? are you serious? Yeah, it's a, like it's, it's neither a, it's neither a state nor a commonwealth. Um, I think that's right. That seems anyway, crazy to me. So okay. uh, there was a there, there was a state that had um, an anti an anti miscegenation uh, prohibition uh, in its state constitution. Yeah, uh, and and the state voted repeatedly not to get rid of it. So this was put before voters more than once, and more than once voters were like, "No, we're okay with that staying there." Yeah. Uh, a- after loving against Virginia. So, so, you know, that, that tells me there are some people who at some point in time are thinking, yeah, you know, I think that's fine that we have that, um, that, that, that people think that's not a good thing for people to do and therefore want to mm-hmm. prohibit it. 
uh, or, or otherwise try to restrain it. So, um, and, and nevertheless, as you say, uh, loving against Virginia, the opinion doesn't indulge that prospect. No. But we know good people of good faith can disagree about yakety blah. But the Constitution requires respect for dignity. Like, it's not that kind of language, right? It is, right. it's like, this is white supremacy and it is yeah. contrary to basic constitutional values. Correct. And, and so there are different ways to try to different times and places and ways to try to convey what you think the the uh, constitutional principle is and how it needs to be uh, instantiated, how people need to adhere to it or not, how, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And clearly the <laughs> Kennedy writing about a same sex marriage case is in in 20 whatever looks different. From- he doesn't have that same conviction that I think the court had in 1967 that the court needed to be an institution which was committed to the extirpation of white supremacy. And my recollection is that loving is unanimous, although I wouldn't I wouldn't put a whole lot of money on that bet. That's I'm, my recollection as well. I don't remember, there, I just, certainly there are no dissents, right? Hmm? That's my recollection. I don't. I, I certainly don't remember any dissents from Loving. I don't either. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Which is to your point about the courts. Uh, the same as Brown. The court's commitment at that time, although Loving is of course thirteen years after Brown, uh, that uh, the court's commitment at that time to say, well, you know, we need to speak with one voice about this issue. That it's, right. It's it's important in a way that requires. Well, that's that. also the sense that, like, with both of those cases, we are doing something here, right? Like. I think there was an awareness, right, that the court was an active participant, right, in changing the racial order, right, in a way that, like, sure. th- that I-, I think Kennedy understand, like, you know, you look at the arc, right, from um, uh, what was the first Colorado case escaping my mind, Romer right? against right, Romer, right, to to Lawrence, to Obergefell, I mean, in Windsor along the way, there's this right. arc, right, of recognizing, and for him, I think it's more about the almost the libertarian dignity. Of gay people, right, and to be respected equally, right? So equal treatment, libertarian autonomy—all these things are mixing together in a way yeah. to create something that he feels the court is recognizing, right, rather than being like an active participant in securing. Yes, and by contrast, when you when you read, you know, um, things like uh, Brown and Bowling against Sharp and. Uh, and loving, and and even the sort of the one person, one vote Reynolds kind of stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. Reynolds against Sims. Reynolds and... against Sims, Cooper against Aaron, and mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. you 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 get the sense that the court knows that the country's future depends on this. That there's that there is a there's such a deep and profound cancer in the core of the right. country that if the, <laughs> if the court does not, in a determined way, take the knife to this cancer. We can't possibly survive, mm-hmm. and it and that whether they were right or wrong about that, it seems like that's what they thought. To me, anyway, yeah. as I read those opinions, yeah, they, they were, sort of feel like they're in the middle of a, 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 an existential surgical operation. Uh, they were comfortable with with the, and the concept that, that, that they were the right institution to do this, right? That that they yeah. had the power to do it, and, they, and the, the that, thing that, they were doing was necessary, right? Both those things. I think right. come but, through. But nece- not just a necessary thing, but they were the necessary institution to do it. Like they were in the best place to do this thing. Yes. Like who if, – if not us, will this happen? And it must happen. Right. Therefore, we're going to do it. Where, whereas I think with Obergefell, like Kennedy is much less and, – and you know, the, how could you – I mean the court is not, is not nine zip on Obergefell, 
right? So right. It, it's impossible to write an opinion. And it won't be on this. That, it won't be on Masterpiece Oh, no, no, it won't at all. But it's impossible to write an opinion. Either way, opinion that, however like, it comes out, it won't yeah. be unanimous. Like you can't, you can't say like the only people who don't believe in gay marriage are anti, anti-gay bigots when, you know, there are other people in the court who are although, you know, Justice Scalia's opinion went a long way well, towards, well, I mean, towards you, being you quite can, far out there. But like you can't. Just to disagree with it. You, What's that? You actually, you actually could say that. It yeah. would just mean something quite particular about the future of your workplace right um, if you said that right but that that's kind of what i was referring to with scalia's opinion right this is the hide your head in the bag kind of thing which did you see this thing that that garner advised him not to say that in this is this oh, no. this new um boy i'm forgetting it won't surprise you to learn that i'm forgetting who wrote this and, and what it was in because <laughs> I, I haven't read the book you know this new uh, biography of scalia by garner okay. i don't know if it's a biography it's about justice scalia and me okay I don't know why I said I don't know who wrote it. I mean, it's Garner's book about his relationship with Scalia. I just don't remember the title and, and where I kind of read this excerpt. But it's like like he had advised him not to put that in there, but he put it in there. Went too far. Anyway. And it's, uh, you know, uh, Romer against Evans wasn't unanimous. Lawrence against Texas wasn't unanimous. Windsor wasn't unanimous. Bergevall's not unanimous. None of them are. Well, so I felt this kind of frustration. Partly, you know, I, I've done this group now for almost ten years uh, with students, Is it which really is been that yeah, long? it's been almost you know since I got yeah. here, so it's been nine or ten years wow. now, cool. and um, it, which is kind of weird because, of course, I I mean, I enjoy thinking about these legal issues, and I love seeing how these theories develop and thinking about and connecting them up. And um, so, but, but I'm know, like not a court watcher. I still right? don't like, know what's well, frustrating. I'm, yet. So I'm not a court watcher. In the sense that, like, I'm not, like, fascinated by Supreme Court personalities. Um, I love reading Dahlia Lithwick stuff and listening to the podcast. I love hearing about that stuff. But I'm not, like, you know, it, you know, I, I don't have bobbleheads. I'll just say that, right? And, um, and, and so, like, it gets to a point where you just get, I don't know, you kind of get frustrated. Like, again, we're going to be thinking about, like, what's in the mind of Anthony Kennedy here. And and again, like we're, we're like we're going to be making these fine distinctions. Whereas, like these two cases show that there's something underlying, right? There 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 are there are theories of political action which underline these things. And it's fine if the kind of joint opinions, you know, because you have to get five in order to have an opinion, make kind of legal, rhetorical, doctrinal distinctions that people can live under because that's the essence of law, right? We just need to, rules that we can live under that people find acceptable right. that are, you know, incompletely theorized and kind of a Sunstein sense, right? Like we don't expect like logic, even if that were what law is about. And I don't think it was what law is about. Um, but the discussion, right? It, it's, it's the fact that the whole like idea of like legal, what is, what is, what is the correct legal argument? What is a wrong legal argument? Why is this one a better argument than that one? Seems to turn so much on, I don't know, you know, disputation about what various words mean without kind of touching that underlying political reality. Well, I mean, it, it, it can be frustrating. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe, uh, maybe, that's, a, maybe that's a feature, not a bug that one of the ways it that processing these things through legal rubrics one of the things that accomplishes is it's sort of like you know it's like the it's like that what is it called a trivet it's like that thing on your dining table where you put the really hot serving yeah. dish on that thing and it doesn't burn your table right like, I, think you, I think you're thinking of oven mitt 
Like you need a thing between. Yeah. Like you don't want to touch that thing. It's too hot. Like you, you, there needs to be a way to sort of take a step back where people can feel like they're still wrestling with some version of the problem. Right. But they don't have to wrestle with the version of the problem where they feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's like, I need to get my way or I'm going to throw a punch here. Yeah. No, I, I, I I hear, I understand that. And so let's have a different kind of conversation about it where we, where everyone agrees punching isn't the way it gets solved. But then it becomes more like play acting, right? That we're no, going to we're going to talk about no, but in this in, in masterpiece, for example, like we're going to talk about whether this is speech, and we're going to talk about O'Brien. We're going to we're going to talk about compelled speech cases. Well, it's play even acting. though everybody knows you can argue it either way. It's play acting if you haven't successfully sort of not to be a Freudian, but it, but if you haven't successfully sort of formed a superego and learned how to sublimate certain impulses, yeah, it's play acting. Well, but if you really are into yeah. the civilization game. It's not play acting. This is how we've decided to live. And it's the way we live so that because the alternative is violence. But, well, that's true. But so you don't have it, it doesn't have to be that you always go all the way down to the metal and you argue about, you know what I mean? Like you don't <laughs> right, always right, like, of course. You know, for, like say these are my basal political commitments. And 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 if you don't accept those, we don't agree on anything. You don't right. have to go that far. But uh, I'm uh, like Caroline Products. And like, sometimes Caroline Products has a has a constitutional theory, right, around I, which. You absolutely. Know, and, and so here I would say like in, in, in Masterpiece, the theory that I'm looking for is based on one kind of commitment around which I think there w- could be a majority, right, which is that that gay people are part of the community of equals. This is, we talked about this before, right? That is kind of the political move that made fir- that the first initial steps of Romer and then Lawrence and then Windsor and then Obergefell possible, right? Because uh, right. once you recognize they're part of this community of equals, which, you know, as we've talked about on the show, I think is a political choice, right? It's a, yes, and it has entailments. And right. so you can say, and, 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 and I wasn't making the, I wasn't making, I wasn't trying to argue that the strategy for trying to get a step away from the hottest version of the dispute, uh, it has no downsides or no risks. I think it does have risks. You can start to believe that it is an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Uh, an end in itself that, that, that where it's it's actually much more important that you manipulate the concepts than that you realize this is a way to try to find to live together. Mm-hmm. And it's helpful to find a way to live together that doesn't involve throwing punches. Instead, it involves talking to each other and finding a vocabulary for doing that that means real things and affects real people and yet is a little bit more peaceful and a little bit more calm, right? Um it, it, you could forget that and drift off into this sort of philosopher cloud space, which isn't going to be – which That's isn't going to feel responsive or helpful or useful. But it people. also doesn't feel great if you're like – you know, imagine you're in a family and, and we're trying to decide how we're going to uh, write the will. And be, everyone knows that like a lot rides on who gets what and it like says a lot about love and everything. And, like yeah. we don't want to touch these fundamental issues. Right. Um, and, and so everyone knows we're kind of talking about the will, but we're going to play a game of Parcheesi. Not a great game, I think. Do you think Parcheesi is a good game? I, don't, I haven't played in so I long. I just it just came to my mind because I didn't like anything else to put in there, like Castle Panic or Pandemic or something. It's going to like lead to a you know a, a detour. So just not shoots and ladders, please. Um, no, you know Candyland is decided the moment you shuffle the cards. Is that true? Yeah, it's totally deterministic. Wow. I used to tell my kids that when they were young, like we'd shuffle the cards and we, and I'd say, you know, the game is over before we turn the first card over. That, were, that's the kind of parent I was. You see why my kids are so screwed up now. I do. Yeah. There were a lot of um, 
you can take the character name Grandma Nut in a lot of directions. Oh, my God. I'm going to leave that there. You should have left it before you said it. That's where you should have left it. Anyway, uh, it's kind of like we're going to pretend we're not talking about the will. Instead, we're going to play this board game and just see who kind of the winners and losers are. And then somehow at the end, we'll connect that back up with the will. That seems like, you know, the the discussion over whether something is speech or not speech using these kind of like, you know, angels on the head of a pen kind of arguments seems as connected with the underlying concerns about how to realize the the rights of gays to participate fully in the economic civil space and the rights of people who object to – uh, to gay weddings or to gay behavior to exist in that same space like that that question of how to do that is like is that really about so i don't want to say it's totally disconnected because there were many parts of the arguments where there was some recognition of this i'm, I'm kind of pushing quite yeah. far right now it's, you know, i'm moving my hands a lot you are that's do you I'm notice this really glad i'm as many feet away from you <laughs> as i am because it's the bruises i would have right now yeah and you're flailing on digits um no i hear you i understand um and and uh, when there, believe me, as I'm the one of the two of us who's actually a gay person, um, there when I listened to the oral argument, there I had some moments of frustration. Believe me, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the same in this Hustad case. I mean, it's like, did I say Hustad? That's just not going to do it. That is that is uh, third person singular in Spanish. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I don't know the guy. I, I, just just to be clear. See, I didn't feel that – I felt that that argument – that argument did not have any – uh, I listened to the oral arguments. We've, we've talked about this right. many times. At Oye.org, you can put it in your podcast feed. It's, right. And, and I, I didn't read the briefs at all. Um, I'd seen some popular press reporting about the case. I listened to the oral argument. I had none of the frustration in the in that. Uh, the, the Supreme Court yeah. oral argument to me sounded like they were talking very much about what was really important and why, and and how the statutory language was trying to grapple with an, an interlocking and sometimes a multivariate uh, set of issues that pointed in some different directions. Um, I felt none of the same frustration. Yeah, listening and I don't to want to cast aspersions on the advocates here. I think the advocates did a great job. Or the justices the or the yeah. way this sort of whole thing comes yeah, packaged. It's, it's it just, seemed to me very much about I, the right thing. I, well, that I'm not as sure about because like there's a lot you would want to know here. So, you know, does <laughs> there was nothing about like what is the standard of review or the standard um, – like what what is this kind of um, scrutiny standard for asking like – is this really like what what was the reason for the removal really right and that seems to depend on a, uh, on a lot of facts that we just don't know <clears throat> and what do we do with the fact that that the ohio secretary secretary of state probably didn't know those things either and how much discovery was there should there should there have been more so i i was more frustrated there with the fact that this we all know that this is about and did, did that come from the briefs or from the art oral argument uh more from the oral argument okay. i mean the oral argument kind of kind of you know, Breyer's questions in particular kind of get at holes in the empirical holes in the briefs. Like I would, you know, I think he even asked at one point, like, you know, how many, like, do we know this? And yeah. and I just think that hadn't been developed in discovery. He asked more than once about, you know, point me to the place in your, in these papers where I can find out X. And often the answer was, I can't point you to any place in there for that. Yeah. Which is sends a message in and of itself. Yeah. So. 
Uh, anyway, this was supposed to be a – this is just teeing up this issue that we should talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> because I wasn't really prepared. Like I hadn't really – this is just from memory from talking well, about these I, a few days ago. And I, really I, our listeners should just go to First Mondays and to Amicus to, to hear about these cases. Like, you know, we do what we do. And uh, once they're decided, I think depending on what the opinions are like and what we might be interested to say about them and what, what why we think they might be fun to talk about – uh, maybe we'll talk about them then too. Well, we have to – if we do it in our Supreme Court roundup, annual Supreme Court roundup, we have to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we only talk about one case on our on our roundups. True. And, and maybe for that time I'll actually kind of read and, 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 and be familiar at the time that I'm talking about it. That Other be, than trying to relay. That could be fun. So um, are we gonna are we gonna talk about this wonderful email we got? From I think a that's reader? where we are right a now. Listener? A listener, I think that's where we are. Okay, let's do that. Okay, shoot. You've got your phone. Let oh, me just so paint, I'm supposed to read let, it. Too. Yeah, let me just let me just paint a word picture here. Like Joe, of course, his mouth is obscured by the microphone. True, as uh, is yours by right. your mic setup. No, mine's right here. Uh, and um, <laughs> and and he's got a glass of wine by the side. You, by the way, you have been chugging your adult beverage and the bottle is near you so i've i've been i've had a little bit no, you've been sipping you've and been that's sipping because i have an elbow problem but the but the real <laughs> issue here is i just know that if i finish this glass i get no more and that's what are you talking about that's irking until we're yeah. done because you're not going to get up and pour me more wine okay, while and then, we're in and the then you have the your and then you have your phone in front of you about to read this email removed as far as i can tell about as far from your eyeballs as you can possibly well, do I'm it not because wearing my reading glasses more on health corner <laughs> I, can't, I can't read without my reading glasses oh boy For okay Pete's so sake. so read us this wonderful email um i'm going to read the part of it that's that i think is most germane oh, i would read all of it i'm not going to read all okay. of it uh do you really want me to read all of it? I thought it was a great email. Uh, I think there's – I mean, you don't – Dear Christian, Joe, or whoever reads this. Now, <laughs> I when I read that, I laughed because I'm like, how many – does he think we have a staff? I, that's crazy. We, we, we read the emails. We could have a staff. Hmm. Boy, they would not stay for long. I have this feeling. <laughs> I've been listening to your show regularly for a few months. I was drawn in particularly by your discussions on robots and torts. And on the writing of Legal Digests. Boy, there are going to be a lot of people who are like, I listen to your show right up until this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My interest is in Jewish law, and both of these areas are parallel in some respects to issues that arise in the theory and history of that legal tradition. I now listen every week, and I'm slowly working through the back catalog. Awesome. I encourage that. I encourage completism. Totally. My reason for mentioning my own background is to indicate that I'm a law lawyer with no plans to become a lawyer. Fair enough. With that in mind, I was wondering if you had any suggestion, suggestions for books on law and legal theory that would be valuable for a person interested in the sort of discussions you have on the show. This could involve psychiatric journals, actually. <laughs> more I think Especially about it. for this um, episode, yeah. Uh, uh, we, do, we do have good episodes, though. We do. Uh, with that in mind, I was wondering if you had any suggestions for books on law and legal theory that would be valuable for a person interested in the sort of discussion you have on the show, but without the training that you have to read. If you'll allow another way to frame this question would be, what would a syllabus for an introduction to law seminar open to upper-level undergraduates and graduate students from other fields look like if you were to write such a, such a thing? 
I feel like you have I, written such a thing I, and you teach I, such a class. I got this. I, I saw this email and I think, and I thought to myself, you know, Avram, have I got the answer for you? <laughs> this, I mean, kind of literally. Right. You, it, 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 I knew we were going to talk about this. So kind of, I kind of made show notes with just like a couple links in them. Oh, so you could point to this. Your, you, what is it called again? The, so, so I have two, I have two, su- I have two th- suggestions for Avram. Okay. Okay. The first is I have some suggestions too. But by the way, yeah, no, I mean there are plenty of like. But if you want, if the question is like, what courses? Like, how would I take a course in law? Like, or how would I know what you would do in a course in law? Because I want to know this stuff. I've got I, so I've, for a non-law student. Right. I've someone ma- who doesn't want to become a law. I've student. made available like two public classes in law. Yeah, uh, one of them is geared toward undergraduates. Right. It is. I, I kind of characterize it as a beta right now because I've only kind of put it together this year. It's still experimenting. I don't know how, you know, I still have a lot to think about. Is this what's on SSRN? So this is the Foundations of American Law class. Oh, about, I'll include a link. It... It's on my website, but there's the, the textbook is on SSRN. Okay. Uh, it has a companion podcast series featuring... You and me. Christian and Joe. So good. I just said my own name. That's weird. Yeah. Um, made you sound like Bob Dole. <laughs> We are old people, uh, <laughs> right? Because a lot of our listeners have no idea who Bob Dole is. So, so, so there's a textbook uh, for that, which so it kind of goes through this kind of theory I have about levels, but but also yeah. there's another kind of organization which really happens at the same material. time. I'm not sure how it all works together quite I yet, think it and works I, great. I may well, I may organize it because I really wanted to do this level one, level two, level three, level four idea, but it's also centered around the um, law and policy argument part one. Institutions Part Two, Interpretation Part Three yeah. idea, right? So yeah. it kind of is mixes those metaphors a little bit, but uh, but I think it's a decent introduction, and so it's and a you're text- link to all that. I'll link to all that, and 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 you can see on on the site. The, the second you had two things. The second course that I've made kind of publicly available is a, I guess it would be a standard law school jurisprudence class, mm-hmm. but it's a legal philosophy class which starts with, well, it starts with uh, basically at Holmes Path of the Law. And um, goes to up through kind of heart, uh, the heart work in heart fuller Is this debates. Some version of the modern American legal theory. Yeah, that's what I call it at Georgia. But yeah. I would call it like I call it legal theory one hundred and one. And I don't have a textbook because a lot of the works are kind of copyrighted. The truth is, you can find a lot of them online. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so if someone had a reading list, I have a I, I have a reading list on the site with links to things which are linkable. Yeah. Uh, and a companion podcast series. Uh, now the podcast series is not you and me, Joe. It is just it's me and kind of shorter clips with some sound effects. Now, way back in the day, you and I actually did record some malt stuff for the didn't first we? iteration of that. We we tried this it was years ago, and that was not that was not mandatory for the students. It was like, hey, Joe and I are going to get together and we're going to talk about this stuff, yeah. and maybe you'll find it, was it useful. Because I like doing the readings for that. that was it was fun. fun, and and in fact, one of the one of the po- one of the podcast episodes for the malt class it does feature you and me because it's the one where we talk about the public private distinction. Oh, cool, right? Because one of the things I had the student read is one thing that I read in in uh, in kind of comparison to a Duncan uh, Duncan Kennedy piece, right? And and I had you on because I didn't want to talk about my own work. I think I think you meant to say a thing you wrote, not a thing you read. Did I say that? Yeah, you said a well, thing I read. You know, look, I mean, I know that you're just that wine is just getting <laughs> slammed back. Uh, how else are we going to get through this tonight? <laughs> so so anyway, so I, but but I feel like people like Avram who are like. You know, I really do think like law is not that hard in the sense that like understanding the contours of democratic debate and debate about rules, procedures, like 
I think, you know, once you get past a few concepts, and it's not just jargon, you do have to understand certain concepts, but once you understand those things, sure. the idea of kind of what legal arguments are in bounds and how you make a legal argument, the um, kind of thinking about legal institutions more systematically so you can understand what some of their, uh, uh, some, some of their kind of key um, abilities and disabilities are, and then doing some thinking about interpretation and how legal institutions communicate and interpret the, the communications of others. Like once you have a sense of that, then I think even if you're a non-lawyer and you haven't been to law school, you could read a Supreme Court opinion and, and read it one layer deeper than you would if you read just like a an op-ed about it or something right. in the Washington Post or New York Times about it. Uh, and I think also – No offense to the people who do legal reporting for for those papers. But. And your, your two courses are great. And in addition, I would say that what I think the someone who, who went through one or, or the other of them would see is that they could pick up something like Hart's Concept of Law or Dworkin's Law's Empire or some other things that I'm going to mention in a minute um, and actually get quite a bit out of them. Right. I, I think they're works that are uh, deep. Uh, they're also accessible mm-hmm. to non-lawyers. And if you read them as a lawyer and then you read them again 10 years later as a lawyer and read them even 10 years after that, you might get different things out of them. They're that good, right? They, they're they books that are so uh, provocative and contain so much interesting material that over uh, the, so, uh, the course of many years – you mm-hmm. might find it quite rewarding to work through them. This is um, like philosophy, isn't it, Joe? I mean, like some of the best philosophy is something you can encounter and like it will enrich your sure. your spirit, enrich your mind, and then you read it 10 years later and it enriches you in a totally different way. Exactly. And you might yeah. even say um, that the mark of a great book is that it is infinitely rereadable. Mm. Uh, putting that to the side, uh, I, I think that the the things that they encounter in those two uh, the the two courses um, could could be an invitations to dig a little further on the thing that that really piques somebody's interest right if they read a little excerpt from concept of uh, the concept of law uh, by H L A Hart um, not to be confused with uh, hey Darcy with, uh, with uh, uh, who's the heart of Hart and Sachs. Not Henry Hart. Yeah, no. Uh, H. Henry Hart is Herbert Lionel Adolphus Hart, I guess. Right. Oh boy. Um, yeah. In any event, um, you know, dig a little further on something. Like yeah. if it piques your interest, go tr- go give it a try. Right. Yeah. Uh, so other things I want to mention. Okay. Uh, in addition to what you've already said, and I don't know how how heavily they feature in those materials. I don't remember. Yeah. Um. But but. Partly because I'm just a big fan of them, uh, so I'll mention them. Um, is uh, uh, and they're and they're both by the same person, although one has sort of a successor piece, right? So, um, oh boy, uh, can I? I'm just going to write down my guess. I'm going to put it in the guest book, as John Hodgman would say. Put it in the guest book. All <laughs> guesses are right in this instance. <laughs> All um, right. So, Lon Fuller. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> right? God. Right? You know me well. Uh, 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 Lon Fuller's Morality of Law, I think, is interesting. It's and, in my course. And it is in the course? There, the section on Rex is in the course. A little bit of it? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting. And, it, and, and, it's, and Lon Fuller is an interesting figure for a, a, a reason that I want to – are you going to suggest the Splunking and Explorers as well? Yes. Yeah, that that the course starts with that. Oh, okay. Um, the, the, I would say the, this with, is the Legal Theory One Hundred and One class. With Splunking and Explorers, class. I would say that that um, 
there is a book from the from the sort of mid to late nineties, and I think Peter Suber is the editor of it. But it's something like the new Spelunkian Explorers or new opinions in Spelunkian Explorers or something like that. And it reproduces uh, it's a paperback book, and mm-hmm. it reproduces the um, the fuller piece of Spelunkian Explorers, um, and then has a bunch of new things by a bunch of different law professors sort of writing new entries in the sort of... Yeah, I know about that. I have not actually read it, but I've... Uh, I know it's about fun. It. I think yeah. it's a fun sort of collection. And there's... A, I mean, instead of an... Spelunky and Explorers is such a rich vein of stuff that it's spawned a ton of uh, comment and, and whatever. But this one is... This book, the Peter Suber thing, is sort of fun because it, it, it takes... It start, it's got the, the fuller thing there. So for someone who has having difficulty accessing it otherwise um, uh, or wants it in a sort of a, a bound volume sort of format. Um, and then there's other. So, so the reason that I think Fuller is especially interesting um, and, and the, and the heart Fuller debate as opposed to the heart Dorkin debate um, that you've mentioned um, is as you and I have talked about on a number of different occasions, this period right after the second world war, where jurisprudence are sort of struggling with the fact that right leading up to the war, the sort of legal, the real flowering of legal realism and the sort of Carl Llewellyn striding the world like Colossus, right? And then... Apropos of the discussion that we had for the first 45 minutes of this show, right? mm -hmm. Right that... Well, go ahead. Yeah. And then then there's the sort of the Nazi atrocities, uh, Nazi horror and and just unimaginable... uh, 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 human on human horrendousness, right? And suddenly the legality of law becomes, right? Yeah, the, 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 f- people feeling like, ooh, uh, that legal realism stuff is starting to sound a little precarious. To like me. just because it, you're the state doesn't mean, right, doesn't yeah. mean there's any obligation. And maybe obligation is super important. Maybe maybe mm. that's what we need to be thinking about is the obligation right. and, to follow law. And, and in a way that would be uh, more profound and transcend uh, sort of human opinion about right. the same. Right. Um, and so people after the war are sort of really struggling with this in a very open way. And I think Fuller and Hart, uh, H.L.A. Hart, um, are, are, are two particularly sort of thoughtful, uh, articulate, um, and, and um, two thoughtful and articulate commenters on this sort of set of quandaries. And they're also seem to me, it comes through to me on the page as, as they're not, they're not only thoughtful and have great ideas and they're not only able to express them very clearly, but they also both seem to have this sense that this is super important because human beings are super important and because human life is super important. Right. And that we need to find a way to do this uh, or, (laughs) or we're really going to go over into the abyss. Right. And, and they don't want that. It's at a time when, when legal philosophy, like the, the biggest questions in legal philosophy are felt as intensely practical, right? And, and urgent, right? right? Rather, and, and during times of stasis and, and stability, it can become, you know, you can see legal philosophy and, and the question of what is law as larks, as things that only the, the privileged have time to think about, but like we need to be thinking about, you know, um, you know, more, more, prosaic questions, right? right? And and I, it's interesting because I feel like we're entering another period of instability, mm. 
right? Where these questions of like what the law is suddenly keep popping up. Like what, you know, we were talking about, no, we didn't get to it in the last show about Sally Yates, right? But the, mm. um, like, you know, what is one's obligation with respect to the law? What, what kind of constraints does it apply? What, it, what, what is the relation between law and conscience? Um, what is the relation between law and morality? Like these are the basic questions that the, that the positivists, the natural lawyers, and then we might call the procedural natural lawyers like like Fuller mm. are are wrestling with. Right. I, I think it's fascinating stuff. And in a time when you sort of it's fresh on it's fresh in everyone's experience that there's the 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 Holocaust uh, against Jewry in Europe. There's nuclear annihilation in Japan. Mm-hmm. There's it feel, and the, and we're on the brink of the Cold War, and the world is teetering on the brink. In a way that we sort of have to fi- we have to figure this stuff out. How do we decide stuff together? Yeah. That's the question, right? And I mean, this is why, and it's very much on the. It's like raw and on the surface, and and they and they're rising to that occasion. Well, you know, this is the stuff that I write in. I mean, this is the stuff that interests me. Like, maybe it's not smart academically. Maybe I'm not good at branding myself. Maybe I should like stick to my knitting in some way if I wanted to be like a like a you know like a like a super successful academic. But I cannot shake the fact that whenever I see a specific legal question that is of any urgency. And I push on it a little bit and I ask, why are people disagreeing about this? Because I can see the arguments on both sides. All sure. of us can see the arguments on, on all course. sides. Like, and I'm asking myself, what is really happening here? Like, why is this thing a danger? Like, why, why you know, the sense that we have, this is, this disagreement is spinning out into something more dangerous. Like, what is the essence? What is the kernel of that disagreement? Um, it always goes back to this question, like, what is law? What is this thing that human beings are doing? Right. Which... You know, you push on far enough and it goes to what is a human being? Like, what are we doing when we do law, right? Um, so I'm always pushed to this question, like, yes. which is why I write in this area. Yes. Um, or try to write in this area. And it's uh, and it's why I think it's fun to hang out with you and talk with you about stuff because I'm, I am, um, I'm not as inclined as you are to get to that question in part because I don't feel like I can do as much with it when I get there as you can. I can't but, either, but it doesn't stop me. No, I don't know. I, I think you do. And, and I, at least you seem to me to be better able than I am at, least, at any rate. So, so it's fun. Yeah, it, it is fun. I mean, like, I don't know. I, you know, it's like, I don't know what else I could do. There you go. When I was in mathematics, I was always interested in, in set theory and in basic mathematics and, and kind of got out of it precisely when I thought, you know, this is not going to give me the answers that I'm looking for in my life. And, um, and, and, you know, I went through a bunch of other things before I got to where I am now in terms of thinking about what I wanted to do with life. But now that I'm here, like I, you can never escape yourself, you know, Joe, you can mm. never get away from who you are and who I right. am is basically asking like, it, it's just, it, it doesn't feel like enough to ask, like, is this speech or not? You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like enough. Right. Um, because I can, I can make the argument that it's speech. I can make the argument that it's not speech. But I understand, like I understand why we make a, why we make a doctrinal scheme. Like it's like creating a sculpture together, where we know that the most important part of it is that we're doing it together, and it doesn't so much matter what it is. We can, you know, we we can step back from it and say, boy, we should have created a much better sculpture. Like that's an objectively bad sculpture. Of course, some sculptures are better than others, right? Um, but it's much better that maybe there is one than there is nothing. I don't know. Yeah, and, 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 and I think I think so. Am I making it? Does that make any sense at all? It does, especially okay. especially if you're if you're live to the prospect that one of the alternatives is each of us picking up some of the rocks around us and bashing each other in the head. 
Well, this gets back to, you know, we've mentioned this on the show before, and I've never managed to put this kind of in writing, but there are times, I'm not saying you should pick up a, a rock. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm actually kind of a pacifist, but, um, but at least where cooperation and producing something is not the right answer, right? There, there are times when revolution is the right answer, right? Where you think, no, this thing that we're building is evil, hearkening back to the Nazi example that sure. you point out was the, you know, was the urgent question. Um, in the post-war era for, uh, for, for legal philosophers. Um, but then there's also this thing, it's not really in between because it goes beyond revolution. That's the saboteur, right? That's the person who doesn't even honestly represent his or her intentions to mm. the governing regime right. and knocks it down from the inside, right? There, so so I, um, the, you're, you're right. The alternative to working together to build a structure within the existing order is and, picking up a rock in some at least metaphorical way. I, I didn't say the alternative. I well, said an alternative. Well, I say the alternative at least in a metaphorical way. Yes. Right? Sometimes it's like picking up a physical rock. Sometimes it's taking a rock to the existing legal doctrine. Yeah. I don't know. Are we hitting it? Yeah. So I think we've um – I think the email from listener Avram was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think what we've said is very much to the point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've got a couple other suggestions for him, though. Okay, so lay those on us, and then we'll depart. Well, I, I, so if you, you know... And by the way, I think if people listening have other things they would want to recommend, things they've read that they thought were especially great, let us know, because we'll, we can, next time, we talk about those, too. Including, like they could say, Avram, if you want to know anything about law, for God's sake, stop listening to that show. Totally. They might say that. We, and we will pass that along <laughs> faithfully. Faithfully. We are faithful agents of our listeners. Would you say that? No. But okay. we will pass that okay. along. <laughs> okay. Um, there are two more modern books on, on legal theory, which which do a lot. Like one of them is uh, Scott Shapiro's Legality. Sure. Quite uh, a tome. It is. And it's really good. Like it, it does a really good job of, of explaining – this debate that you were just talking about, the Hart-Fuller debate, including – as well as the Hart-Dworkin debate, which mm-hmm. is something we didn't talk about today. Um, and and also um, Shapiro's own theory of law, which is quite interesting. Um, it's one that I engage with in my work a little bit. Um, I think it's fascinating. The planning theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's a positivist like I am, although I have a different take. As I largely am. Um, the, the other one – and I know that you and I have talked about this offline – and we want to talk about a lot more in the future because I was just enraptured reading it. Is Brian Tamanaha's Realistic Theory of Law. Yeah, I have not finished it yet. But yes, I think Tamanaha is a very interesting, provocative He's also thinker. a super, super nice guy. Indeed. Uh, and and this book the is – the pleasure of meeting him. One of the nice things about this book is it, it's kind of a – it's zeroing in on some of the same questions as, as, uh, as Shapiro, Hart, Dworkin, everyone else. But he brings in a lot of different kinds of ideas um, to that debate. So it's not like you're – it feels a little bit like instead of mining the same materials but seeing the framework in a different way, he brings in a bunch of new materials. You know yeah, what I mean? I, I don't know it's as, that it's as accessible to a non-lawyer. Yeah, I don't know it, that realistic would be the first thing I would suggest. Do you not? I, see, I, I don't even have a good sense of this. But I think certainly if you go through and you read some of the – Materials from Legal Theory 101. I mean, certainly after you've been through that course, oh, you can ab- read it. No doubt about it. Yeah. You t- totally. But I just don't know that I would start with that. Hmm. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I, I would start with it. I'm just going to take the contrary position. Okay. You do that. Start with that and then take my courses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just goofing. 
I'm just goofing. I don't know, Joe. What else do we got to talk about? I think that's it. For I knew you were going to say that. I think that's it for this evening. Once, Which is why you asked me. Because you want me to say that. You, you, you just want me once, on that I wall. You, you just... need me on that wall. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you ask. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've, been, we've been cooped up by basically one inch of snow, which canceled my entire week of classes. <laughs> It had no effect on my classes at all. I, I, had, I, I teach Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Monday was Martin Luther King Day. Wednesday, there was an inch of snow. And Thursday, it hadn't quite all melted. So they canceled that before 10 a.m. Right. I teach at 9. So and I, I taught on Tuesday and taught on Friday. Yeah. My, 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 my total week was wiped out. Of course, I also had the stomach flu, so I got no benefit from this extra mm, spring break. Bummer. Yeah. So what do you do? All right, Joe. Uh, I'm going to hit stop, and we're going to ship this thing. Awesome. Chip it. <laughs>